Hey everybody, welcome to The Best Show, and my name is Tom, and I'm the host of The Best Show, and this one might sound a little different, it's because we're not live tonight, here's the story with where we're at in the second week of May of 2022, this is recorded earlier on Tuesday, so... Where are we at? So basically, we don't have a studio in Jersey City, and we will shortly have one in Los Angeles. Imminent. Right now, the Jersey City studio, due to the uh, thanks to the efforts of our uh, beloved producer Pat Byrne, Pat worked really hard and did a great job and packed up Jersey city and it's on a truck and hopefully nobody pulls a fast and the furious and takes over the truck and then starts doing a show of their own. Cause certainly all the equipment is on that truck and you could do it. I'm not saying where the truck is. I don't want, I don't trust nobody. I don't know what you maniacs are going to do. If you're going to jump on the truck and drive it away and then start doing the best show. Look, it's not the mask. You won't become the best show if you uh, get the equipment for the show. It is not like the movie The Mask. so Or Son of the Mask, for that matter. Um, which I prefer. I, I think I'm in the minority on this. That I think I like Son of the Mask better than... The uh, first mask. I think it's like a Godfather, Godfather 2 situation. They definitely figured a few things out and uh, made some course corrections. And that's why Son of the Mask is my favorite in the Maskiverse. Do you think that the movie Mask takes place? There's a Maskiverse and a The Maskiverse, I guess. So, um... Well, look, that's neither here nor there. The equipment's on its way. So what that does is it creates a little bit of a conundrum in the so far that we are betwixt and between, as they would say back in the old days. And right now, we're kind of pulling together best shows over the next couple weeks with the best that we got equipment-wise. And we got some pretty good deals here, equipment-wise. We got, cause uh, we got the the mics and we got the setups, and we're a little bit uh, down and dirty right now. We're doing it down and dirty for the next couple of weeks until the studio in Los Angeles is official and set up and. Ready to go. And here's the loose schedule, Thad. You can't pin me down on any of this stuff because who knows what could happen. But here's the loose schedule. Not sure what next week's show is going to be. The week of the 17th of May 17th. Not sure what that show will be. Figuring it out. We'll figure something out. May 24th, I think we'll be ready to do a soft launch of the show. 
from the Los Angeles studio. Then May 31st, that should be the the proper kickoff of the show. And we should have everything rolling as our guy, Mr. Frederick Durst, once said. It will be rolling, rolling, rolling. And we'll have all the pieces in um, in place. Be able to do the show officially and uh, and as great as we want it to be. And I want it to be great. And it's going to be great. And I'm so excited. It's really a chance for some new beginnings here, best show-wise. Um, without saying goodbye to the past, we can say hello to the future is really what I want to do. The past will always come with us. And the past is always a part of us, and we should be proud of the past. This is the best show. Is one of the it's one of the best things I've ever done in my life, and I'm happy it means something to so many people. And we're just going to keep going, though. I always look at it as chapters, and I look at it as here's a chance for a new chapter. This new studio, God willing, if this gets set up the way I envision it, we are off to the races, man. We will be in a position to have the best of what WFMU offered the best show in terms of resources combined with the freedom of the post-WFMU era. There is a true, legitimate, exciting opportunity here, and I see this as a big chapter. This is a big chapter. This is a big chapter coming. I'm very excited about it, and I'm really looking to jump headfirst into it and go somewhere with it and bring back the things that I love that I haven't been able to do because in in the, the reality of things is when COVID rolled in, production got tight and got very hard to do certain things the way I want to do them. But that will not be a concern if, if everything works out and when, when everything works out, not if, when. So we're going to get it all set up. We're going to make it all happen. There's going to be a chance to bring back some of the things I've wanted to do and keep doing. And there's going to be a chance to go forward and do brand new things. Can't wait. So excited. I feel in, I feel my heart beats a little faster when I think about it. I'm not, I'm not kidding. I'm, I'm legitimately excited about where we can go with this. And I want to take advantage of being here in Los Angeles and starting new chapter in my personal life and new chapter in my professional life. And I want the, the best show is kind of the axis for a lot of those things. And yeah, we're going to go forward and I'm really looking forward to you joining me on it. And I think it's going to be, it's going to be legitimately exciting for a lot of 
for, for all of us in a lot of different ways. So that's where that's at. So I would say the month of May is going to end very differently best show wise than the month of May started. That's the, that's how it's shaping up. So I will give you the details as soon as I have the details, but the loose schedule is more or less what I just said this week. We're doing a show kind of assembling a show. I'm going to do an interview with, uh, author Jim Ruland, the author of corporate rock sucks. The, the, uh, the, uh, the, the history of SST records, one of the most amazing and confounding labels and stories in all of music. And we're going to talk to him in a few minutes and a real, the book's amazing. The story's amazing. The music is amazing. And it's really going to be, uh, uh, I, I can't recommend the book highly enough. If you're a, uh, a fan of eighties independent music, uh, this is, this is, this is the, this is that story. And it's really worth it. You know, the, the book works really well as a companion piece to our band could be your life from Mike, Michael, Azrad's book from way back when. And, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a nice companion to that. If you like that book, you're going to love this book. So, um, it's worth checking out and I'm really looking forward to talking to Jim all about it. A uh, couple things, couple things. I would say, since we're putting a studio together, before I can, I can't give any super specifics away just yet. But I can say that we are we need some equipment for the studio in Los Angeles, and this is what you would consider an all call. So if you have it, if you can help with this, or you know someone who can reach on out to me uh, via Twitter, via however. You can get in touch with me. Hit me up on social media or through the Best Show website or whatever. You can get us. Uh, we need a drum set, uh, an upright piano, some guitar amps, some mic stands, PA speakers, a DI, a DI boxes. What are, what are DI boxes? I'm... I'm, I don't know what DI boxes are, but I know I'm D-U-M. Uh, that's dumb. Yeah, you might be able to get an inkling of of what we're, we're going to be able to do in the studio space by my request. But if you've got a drum set laying around and you want to give it away, you want to sell it for cheap, we're looking for stuff in good shape, please uh, reach out. This is not a this is not a charity case, but we also it is a lean and mean operation is what that's the best way I can describe it. Not looking for handouts at all. If you're just looking to unload a piano, we'll come get it if it's in good shape. Um yeah, drum set, piano, guitar amps, mic stands, PA speakers, DL box, DI boxes. See I said DL it was a DL Hughley. We're not inviting DL Hughley. 
I don't want D.L. Hughley's boxes, even though this is a, a Los Angeles production. D.L. Hughley's uh, storage items will not be a part of the equation. Not ever. That You can take that one to the bank. Um, yeah, because we're going to look to do a lot of exciting things with this space. I'm truly... Uh, I'm truly charged up about it, and I, I, I know you all will be too, when this, uh, when this becomes reality, and we're gonna try to, we're gonna try to hit the ground running with it. We really want to jump in. There's a lot of stuff we want to get to and do, and we are looking a boogie on the best show. Um, so, with that said, if you've got any of that stuff, reach out. Also want to let you know that I'm on John Daly's podcast this week. Um, we talk about uh, the podcast Our Thing, hosted by mob rat Sammy the Bull Gravano. Um, yeah, John's podcast, just so you know. It, there was a title shift with it, and now... It is known as Formerly Deliberately, I believe. I'm going to double check right now and see what the name of the show officially is. What? Can't connect. Come on. Look at just for the name of the, uh, my, my fellow's podcast. What's my fellow's podcast name? Let's see. Yeah. Let's see. Come on. What's John's podcast called? We all know. Why can't I find it? Well, here we go. Oh, yeah, it's formerly deliberately. That's what I was. Formerly deliberately wasting your time. So, um... Look that up. It's a really funny episode. I had so much fun. And John's uh, one of my favorite people. And his, his show is so good and so entertaining. So I'm on the latest episode. Um, Jason Dudio Gore has a live show coming up uh, in June in Los Angeles. You can get information on that. Go to his social media, Mr. Jason Gore. We... Uh, we are doing bonus stuff this week for the show. Uh, there's going to be a new Ask Tom this week. And there is going to be a Best Show Book Club coming up imminently. With uh, Blood in the Garden as the topic. Uh, the book about the 1990s New York Knicks. That will be the, uh, that will be the book we discuss. And uh, we're going to record that. But now I tell you as, as you are my friends. Oh, and also we're going to send new stickers out. So, um, keep your eyes peeled in the next few weeks for that. There's a new best show sticker. Everybody pledging over at the Patreon, which is patreon.com slash the best show is going to get a sticker. So yeah, re hang tight. Everybody pledging at $5 or more, I believe is what it is. So Hang tight and check your mailbox. Next few weeks should get stickers. Uh, they should start trickling out to everybody. And I say to you, 
thank you for supporting the show while we're in this transitional period. We're figuring it out. It's going to be great. It's, uh, it's, we're, we're, we're trying to put together entertaining things while we get the one studio from New Jersey to California. And that's not nothing. And again, I appreciate Pat's efforts with that. He really did an amazing job. Um, Okay, so look, we'll figure out what next week's best show looks like. In the meantime, please enjoy my conversation with Jim Ruland, the author of Corporate Rock Sucks. Hey, welcome to the best show. Our friend, and I am going to say friend right off the bat, because I know it's going to be true when at the end we will be calling each other friend. Um. But I know you as my friend to be and as the author of Corporate Rocks. Oh, my God. Corporate Rock sucks. I'm already flubbing things. I can't do this to my friend. This is how I treat my friends. Corporate Rock sucks. The rise and fall of SST Records. We have Jim Ruland on the show. How are you, Jim? I'm doing good. And since we're future friends, I forgive you. Thank you. That's the spirit of friendship. And I appreciate it. Now, uh, thanks for doing this. The book is amazing. I had such a great time uh, reading it. And it's really a book that in a strange way, it's a strange thing to say that it it took until 2022 for somebody to tell this story as a book. Yeah, it, it's... Uh, I- I really am surprised. I mean, I've been writing for punk rock zines all my adult life. So I'm kind of used to, you're, you're a zine guy. You know how it mm-hmm. is. You're kind of used to people not paying attention to you. Uh, at least that's how it's been, uh, you know, in my zine writing career. So I really didn't expect so many people to say what you just said, which is I've been waiting all my life for this story. It's interesting because it was just, it's almost like, as soon as I heard the, the saw the announcement that the book was was coming out, I I had two thoughts. I was like, oh my god, I can't wait to read it, and the and all and also just the how on earth did this story not get told yet? And it's funny because it's kind of like the I was hiding in plain sight the whole time, like this the biggest story that could be told in all of eighties rock alternative music college radio whatever you want to call the scene sst is a a towering monument to so much stuff that somehow people told so many smaller stories without telling the biggest one of all i i think and sst is in the history of recorded music and independent music sst is just a monumental accomplishment of a label it's 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 huge how how how, um what was the first sst record you bought that you Uh, can remember well um man let me think i think some of the early ones i got would have been sonic youth uh when i was in college or some maybe a little bit after that negative land okay and um because you know, I graduated high school in 86. Mm-hmm. So 
by the time I was like really getting into a lot of this stuff and I joined the Navy right out of high school. So it took me a while. It was, you know, SST had kind of passed its prime. Right. And I was more into more underground bands and underground labels. And, and so I, I wasn't, I didn't kind of have the same kind of reverence for SST that uh, a lot of the readers of this book and people who have been reaching out to me, I was fascinated by it because there's a lot of drama, a lot of conflict, and that's always good stuff for a story, right? Absolutely. It's it's funny. We are we are pretty much in the same boat uh, in terms of what I guess what what crop we came up with, which which wave we were a part of, because. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I came to SST through Dinosaur, Sonic Youth. Um, like those were the those were the entry points for me. What was very similar. Where where were you growing up when for what part of the country were you in when you when this stuff hit you? Well, uh, I I went to high school in Northern Virginia, and it wasn't until like I mentioned joining the Navy, I got sent out to San Diego, and really liked it in California that I really started to get out, get into Southern California punk rock and, uh, you know, all the bands and all the history that's, you know, out there. But I did a book with Keith Morris, the, as you know, the founding vocalist of Black Flag. And I had also lived in, in Manhattan Beach during one of my trips around Southern California. So I was very interested in the lore and legacy of Hermosa Beach and everything that Keith told me about the label and his experience in the band. And that's kind of uh, where my interest really started to percolate. That was uh, a fascinating story to be told. Yeah, it's and it is a fascinating story because it's a it's a sprawling story that covers decades and uh, has so many amazing personalities kind of weaving in and, and, and sliding back out or getting pushed out, or there's so many types, there's so many styles of music falling under this umbrella, even though it's all kind of ostensibly people think it's a punk hardcore label to start with, but that changed almost immediately. It's yeah, like, like it really it, they went off that, like they went off brand. If that was the brand, right out of the box when when you when the Minutemen are the like that's that's a band that was right out of the right right uh from the get-go was not playing by the same kind of prescribed hardcore rules and uh yeah the label cast a, a surprisingly wide net um so Keith Morris talking to him that's kind of what made you feel that this is a story you would be interested in exploring and telling well, the one that I could have a get a foothold in, you know, not not being from Southern California. And even though I lived in the South Bay, I wasn't from there. I wasn't part of that insider scene. Right. Um, but I knew it would be, you know, a tough nut to crack, you know, getting getting people, you know, to tell me their stories and things like that. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's um, with so many personalities uh, comprising this story, there is one person obviously at the center of the whole thing, and that's Greg Ginn. And um, he's such a, like telling the story the way you told it, he's such a, uh, he's just such a frustrating figure. I, that's the best, the best way I can describe him. He's just confounding and frustrating where he's incredibly talented. He's one of my favorite guitarists, but then, and he started one of the all time great labels, but it's just like to, to me, it felt like, and you tell me what you think of this. He, it was like, a, it became like, Oh, if he did one or the other, things would have been very different. If he had focused on black flag or being a label head, but not both simultaneously. Yeah. It's really hard to say because it's, uh, I mean, things changed even when he was still in black flag, but it wasn't until after he blew the band up that the label expanded and really started to penetrate the consciousness of, of, uh, you know, people who listen to college radio and the whole alternative wave of music that was creeping into music videos and and festivals and, and things like that. So um, he kind of did that, you know, he, he did the black bike for a while and then he really focused on the label. But it, it's really fascinating this, you know, there are many sides to Greg and I, I've gotten so many messages and people have told me that like, oh, wow, you really you got it right. He was such a generous person. He was brilliant. He was this, he was that. And then I would get the exact same message from another person saying, yeah, you got it right. He was a total dick to us and he didn't, he didn't pay us and he did this and he did that. And um, it's really fascinating to me how one person, you know, can be so polarizing. Yeah. And that, that polarizing uh, nature came from a guy who was very driven and and extremely focused maybe at a level that not a lot of other people on the scene were focused there people are having fun with their bands and this is a guy who was approaching it as if it was me us when it starts with black flag it's us versus everyone was kind of the approach because they they didn't have the same look as uh, they they weren't just like kind of wearing the uh the the uh the approved hardcore punk outfits they didn't look right i mean he's playing his clear guitar and it's just it's just it, everything was just they were doing their thing and but they would not budge off of that yeah very very focused very determined but also very stubborn absolutely and and I guess that was such a necessary part of kind of breaking the back of as, as the leader of black flag, that level of, of focus and determination made it so that they could tour nationally and, and be an internet, just be like a, they were a band that, that, that did what they wanted to do. They accomplished what they wanted to, even though it, it was at that point, because at that point, if you could go into a little bit of what was the landscape like for a band not on a major label? Uh, well, um, I mean, 
it was tough. I mean, there was no financial path for success. And I was just thinking about this the other day, how like 1994 doesn't feel like it was that long ago when like Green Day is at the Grammys and, you know, people who are in their 30s know all the words, the pop punk songs. And it was just like things changed so quickly where like it became so popular, right? And, you know, complete saturation of mainstream culture. And then it changed again. And I think that's part of the appeal of, you know, this story now is like this dawning realization, like, wait, wait, hold on a second. Everything is on a computer and wow, we're never going to have another SST. And I think the problem facing bands now is very similar to what was facing, you know, bands in the early eighties and the, but just from a completely 180 degree turn in that, now there's like complete saturation you there's all the means to put your music and be heard but no way to really fight through the noise and in the 80s there was just no way for anyone other you know to be heard at all i mean you couldn't you couldn't make records that that was too hard or it seemed like it was too hard until you know sst showed everyone that that you could do it and it wasn't that hard and it wasn't that expensive but also there was like nowhere to play either places were afraid of punk band you know, front punk acts and you know had banned it a long time ago or were just not interested in taking that kind of risk because these are these are businesses and they just wanted top 40 cover songs so it was a real it was a real dark time for independent music and SST was such such a radical uh, beacon of light yeah, they really kind of laid out the 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 rule book and the roadmap to do all this stuff that kind of other people could follow the model. And then when you have like Maximum Rock and Roll doing the book your own life and all the yeah. stuff like book your own to book, your, it's just like everything like that grew out of this initial thrust of of a band like Black Flag just refusing to accept the way things were. And they kind of found these like-minded people. And and one of the interesting things to me is when you look at the SST lineup, that initial wave of Meat Puppets, Saccharine Trust, Minutemen, Black Flag, who else am I missing from that first like overkill was in there sure and, um but they're yeah all they're, we- they're all weirdos is what like it's like the bad news bears sometimes when you look at that like nobody is like traditionally cool at that point they're all kind of the oddballs and uh, more importantly and and to your point were rejected by you know the hollywood punk scene Mm-hmm. that was you know gaining steam and was a really vital and energetic scene and you know took off in la um in a much more vibrant way i think than maybe even in uh new york and london because you know but where before the major labels snapped up all those bands right and tried to make them popular and then it didn't really happen 
there was no opportunity for that for the bands in Hollywood. So they did it all themselves. They started their own label. They started their own fanzines. People were taking pictures and making costumes for the bands and friends were producing albums and, and just learning by doing and making it up as they went along to built an entire scene out of nothing. And so that everybody felt like they were part of it. Yeah. And they, I, they literally, everybody carried, carried their water to make this thing work. And, and it really was a team effort early on where, I mean, because you had, you had SST black flag first was was nervous breakdowns. The first single, then you go into, was it paranoid time is the first Minutemen EP. Yep. Yeah. The first EP and already they're operating outside of the, like the, like you said, the Hollywood punk scene, they're getting on bills and people and the audience is not digging it. And you can see if you, if people can go look at, go look at some of the early Minutemen footage where they're just getting gobbed on and heckled by the audience. It's like, it's one of those things that there are probably people who are at that show spitting at them who now are bragging that they saw the Minutemen in 1982 and not saying like, well, I didn't get it back then, but they're, they're kind of leaving that part out of the, out of the equation. Yeah. There's, uh, there's no question. I mean, the Minutemen never really had their, their moment. I mean, I think you could argue that, that at the beginning Firehose started out, you know, more popular than Minutemen ever became um, just because of the tragic death uh, of D Boone, but they were on the, um, just weeks before his passing, they were on REM's, uh, what album was it? But they were touring with REM. I Probably mean, Fables of the Reconstruction, maybe? That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So that's 85. They're touring because D. Boone died the end of 85, right? Yeah. Like December. Yeah. So that would be, and they're actually getting some national exposure and they're, they're, they're trying things. It's like, we, I want to talk about each of the, the main uh, first wave SST bands. And again, we're here with uh, Jim Rowland, the author of corporate rock sucks, the rise and fall of SST records, a book that is out and who put it out? Hatchet. Hachette. Yep. Hachette. Okay. I apologize. Yeah, I'm apologizing to everybody. I apologize to Hachette now for saying their name wrong. Um, the French. That's yeah. Well, I, I apologize. Hachette. <laughs> um, so let's start with black flag. It's they're kind of this, this, this hardcore band. Keith Morris is the first singer. They're playing shows. The scene is, it's, it's like who, who embraced black flag. If, if they were not fitting in, to this, to the, to the, the, like the uh, approved scene, who were the people that got on board with them off the bat? Uh, not off the bat because, but it was Brendan Mullen. Um, when Brendan Mullen was running the mask, you know, black flag was trying their best to get in there and play. And by the time they did, it was for a benefit show to, you know, the mask had already been shut down and moved to another location and, and they never got to play. But then Brendan went on to book shows at Club Lingerie 
and it's a really was a very influential guy in the Hollywood scene. And it wasn't until I think um, he took a trip with Black Flag up to San Francisco and he realized like these guys are monsters. Mm-hmm. So he 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 signed off on them and they were getting good bills then. Yep. That, but that's also right around the time when, you know, the, the hardcore influx of the, the suburban kids that, that summer when the LAPD really said, oh, okay, we're going to black flag, huh? You want to play uh, shows? Well, we'll see about that. Sure. And then that, all that, it's like that classic, um, what would it be? The Streisand effect that almost that kind of thing where all the police need to do is say, we like we hate black flag and then everybody's like who's black flag and now they're they want like it's like a it's like a ticket to to uh to finding new fans is to have have an authority uh figure condemn you oh yeah like the, like a self-fulfilling prophecy like black flag is going to cause problems so we, the police <laughs> need to show up and then the police cause pro and then sure enough there are problems yeah and then kids looking for a soundtrack to it just found it um, so yeah, so black flag start off, uh, as, like, and it, like SST initially, I guess, what, do you know whether Greg saw SST as being right out of the box was going to be a, a label that signed multiple artists or was it just going to be a vessel for, for their own releases? Um, in terms of the very early days, I don't know, but I, I think, what it was initially was that the rejection, uh, like not being able to get gigs in Hollywood was very frustrating to Greg. And so he was intent on, on building his own scene and mm-hmm. those early shows that he booked himself. Um, they all were, they all were bands from San Pedro and other places in the South Bay, like Torrance and Lomita and, and things like that. And so he always had a, um, was, was partial to bands from that area. And, you know, rather than, you know, he wasn't interested in poaching bands from Hollywood and, and, you know, trying to compete in terms of a label. He was really trying to build a scene. So Mm -hmm. that's why you had Minutemen and Zachary Trust because they were out of that scene. They were doing something interesting. They were doing something different. They embraced, you know, the, the punk aesthetic of make something new rather than the punk sound which was already starting to take hold um, in and around LA. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Greg had much more uh, wide ranging tastes maybe than the typical hardcore kid also. No doubt. Which, which, which is why a band like the Minutemen would pop for him because it's, it's three guys playing something that has influences that just, I mean, it only ends up sounding like the Minutemen in the end uh, with them, but they're, they're not pulling from the same uh, well as the, as a lot of the, the more stereotypical bands would have been. And and I don't think it was something like, wow, this is amazing. This is great. We have to make a record. I think it was, I really like what you're doing. I want to support it so that more people can hear it. Mm -hmm. And so, so at that point you have, the scene is starting to build, but it's definitely regional at that point. Who Who's the first band that was really outside of the area that SST jumped on? 
Um, outside of Southern California or outside of South Bay or? Sure. Well, whatever, either one or both. You can. Well, I'm going to say uh, the stains from Boyle Heights just because I will never pass on the opportunity to talk about the stains because they've all been written out of uh, Southern California punk history. Mm-hmm. But uh, there was a real brotherhood of bands, uh, a brotherhood of feeling between those two bands. With with Black Flag and the Stains. Yep. Yeah. So they, and they, they kind of, the Stains kind of got lost a little bit in the shuffle because of uh, a delayed release also, right? Like the, by the time the record finally came out, they were kind of done. Yeah. And it's interesting, like with the Stains, it was a lot, like Black Flag, there was a lot of turnover, you know, a lot of different people coming in and the, out of the band and the main person was the guitar player he was you know the foundation of the band so when they put out their their album their debut album they were already on their second singer and using songs that people who were no longer in the band had had written um the different it was very similar with the situation with black flag the difference was you know greg in was a much stronger personality and along with chuck dukowski they really you know they were the nucleus of the band and really held it together and uh, despite all of the changes. Yeah. And it's funny when bands have rotating lead singers, especially to the degree that black flag did. Cause what would Rollins would is singer number five is he number four. Yeah. Four. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Cause you know, in the DC scene, like if there's a single lineup change, it's like, that's it. The energy is disrupted. We're broken up. Mm-hmm. Start something new. But uh, that wasn't the case at all for, you know, black flag. And I, I can understand why, because black flag, I mean, it's, it, it should like they had the image in terms of the, the visual side of things with the artwork, uh, you know, Raymond Pettibon's artwork was just, there's like such a branding going on that you usually don't see from tiny businesses have such a, such an immediate, punch in the face kind of impact and, and, a, and, a, and like a uniform vibe visually for the way the records were designed and the way the, the attitude of the music, it's like, it would have been a shame if black flag, when, when Keith leaves the band, suddenly it's like, well, let's call it something different. Like it should, it, 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 it felt like it was becoming a juggernaut that where the singers maybe could be a little, uh, little little replaceable yeah it's it's amazing like what if let's do a little counterfactual uh play with black flag here what if like the first member or person in the black flag camp to depart is craig i'm sorry raymond pettibo what if he says now you're not using my art anymore or my logo and you kind of have to start over i mean is black flag still black flag i mean we think of them in such monolithic terms you know like you said juggernaut and i think a lot of that comes from the 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 visual aesthetic right absolutely no i mean the one thing that gets lost maybe today is that t-shirts were like were like roadmaps a little bit when in the 80s so you'd see a band t-shirt and you'd be like who's that what is that like? And it would like, that's where you got your information from sometimes was a t-shirt. 
to know that there was a band out there or it's just like, or to know their, the attitude behind the band or maybe what's that band about? That shirt scares me a little bit. What is that? I kind of want to know more. And like a t-shirt would be an entry point for finding out about new music as much as anything. Cause college radio couldn't play things that had curses in it, uh, which is another thing. So a lot of times you didn't hear all of the stuff the way you could hear it now. Yeah. So I, I just remember seeing shirts and learning about bands through shirts as much as anything. Wow. Yeah. That, that's very true. I mean, the little walking billboards and, you know, with the, with the consistency of the imagery with Pettibone and the black flag logo being so distinctive and with the bars and the Fitz Quadrata font, um, you know, that consistency really helped, you know, build it up. I mean, it's still recognizable today. Absolutely. And it, it makes it, it made it seem to me as a kid seem bigger than it actually was because it looked so authoritative and it looked like they knew what they were and they, and it's just like, do you want to be a part of this thing? Cause we know who we are. Yeah. I mean, you can put like, you know, four bananas arranged a certain way and be like, Oh, that's the black flag bar. Right. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's uh, yeah, that is an interesting thing to think that if, if the, uh, if you remove the Pettibon art from the, equation what does that look like because it was such a unifying uh element yeah maybe it looks like every other punk band or all or maybe it i think what i personally think is that the artwork disguised the fact that this was a band that was constantly in flux either like where they were located the members playing the style of music the production value all of it was always in flux and it was really uh um constantly changing and you know there was really that first i guess what was it a three-year lag between damaged and my war that mm-hmm. people were really like oh wow okay this is this is kind of different this is radical what's happening you know but but really it was changing all the time yeah and and that's where i would say the, the point I was making earlier about Greg in maybe wearing just one hat could have served either side of things better because th- think of where black flag could have gone if he wasn't in feeling the fiscal panic of being a label owner trying to get recordings from a band that he also happened to be the leader of, for example, like he never, they were never, they, they, they just kind of got caught up in this quantity thing and everything was just a matter of, I I don't know. I, I always feel that after damaged, they, it's just such a losing game with black flag that they never got right after that ever again for me at least i think that uh black flag has lots of great songs and very few great albums that's yeah and i would have loved to have seen what that band would have been like if they weren't focusing on everything at once and if they just had a, a 
a band leader, the guitar player who was just like, we're just focusing on music. I'm not worried about product and I'm not worried about that. We need to, to release this record uh, in conjunction with that record to save on postage or any of that. It just, they, they were their own worst enemy. Yeah. And, and Greg also was maybe, uh, he seemed like he could be a little bit of a scorekeeper and a grudge settler, <laughs> uh, to put it mildly. Um, he had a long memory. That's for sure. Yeah. That, that's, that's, <laughs> that might be a, a huge understatement. It's just, um, because when, when you have, like the Minutemen, you look at their thing, and their thing is such a beautiful upward ascendant rise that was cut short. And they they had the 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 vision to be like, hey, we're gonna do Hooser Do's doing a double album. What if we did one? And they do that. Then they're like, hey, what if we do longer songs? We do songs that have fade outs that just don't finish when we stop playing them. They, they were just like, what if we get Richard Meltzer to do lyrics for us? Like they, they were really, I mean, they were just driven artistically at the highest level. And I feel like Black Flag kind of lost the plot comparatively. I think, uh, I think it's also a matter of taste, right? I mean, people who were really into jazz fusion and the possibilities of, of, of a guitar that wasn't, you know, limited to a pop format or a rock and roll format, that it was a really fascinating thing. Um, but, you know, most people didn't feel that way. Most people were a little bummed out by the process of weeding out, you know, the instrumental EP, mm-hmm. things, things of that nature. Um, but it was very different. I mean, if you look at all the Black Flag records, you know, with the, the jazz experiments, the instrumental record, the spoken word side uh, that they did. I mean, there was the hard, the, the blistering hardcore, the slower and sludgier side to a mind war. I mean, this is a very experimental band. Absolutely. And I look, I like that part of it. I guess I just, I think just the, like, like my war just is not a great sounding record, for example, like it just doesn't like, like the actual recording of it was not, we could, there could have been more, more focus on that. And I mean, look, I end up going to those 82 demos as much as anything I would go to with whatever black flag did like the 80, like those, like that to me is as strong as anything in their entire catalog. And it's not in their catalog. Those are fighting words, Tom. Come on now. Now I happen to I happen to agree with you. Uh, I love the '82 demos. It's uh, it's just a monstrous sound. But there are some people who uh, who um, find that to be uh, blasphemous. I guess we'll have to meet in the street and settle it. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I, I'm with you. I I love that record, and it is really kind of it blows my mind that. Uh, Chuck Biscus was with, here he is with um, Black Flag and Circle Jerks. And the only official recording is one song on the Repo Man soundtrack. I mean, isn't that bizarre? 
for yeah for something that was like they they finally hit the sweet spot and and that's all they get from from this guy yeah they have like this powerhouse behind you know on the drums and there's so little to show for it at the end of it that's kind of the story of punk rock right i guess i guess it's a but it's it's funny because then it starts to bring in issues of what is success it's like they were doing it and they weren't doing it for for posterity's sake they were doing it for the now like that's everything we're talking about is kind of strange because we can we can kind of you know nickel and dime the catalog and break down uh, you know start nitpicking but it's like nobody was setting out to do this for the ages they were doing it because it's what they wanted to do in that moment and for good bad or otherwise yeah this it may but that said i feel like the catalog is is one of the, one of the saddest parts of the whole sst <laughs> thing is the state of the catalog in in 2020 right well like what you were saying about my war about the production and all that well i mean if if you have the masters and if you have the means and the desire i mean you can make you can remaster those things you can make it sound better right um mm-hmm. so why why haven't they well what, what is your what what is your uh answer to that i mean ultimately it's um i mean it's a lack of desire right i mean i i think that you know Opening up that, you know, I think my theory is for SST to go back and reissue any of the records in a deluxe remastered edition where you go back and you say, here are some outtakes and here's some people, right? You know, here's some photos no one's seen. Here's some stuff no one's ever heard. Then you get some people who are there to write about it and, you know, everybody goes bonkers. It opens the door to a lot of other, you know, injuries a lot of the harm that a lot of artists who are harmed by SST who are now going to come out of the woodwork and say, well, this is great that this band is getting their due and we're finally getting able, finally able to hear this record the way it's supposed to be heard. But what about all the other artists who are, you know, their work isn't available or not being paid, you know, and, and that, um, that bitterness is real. I mean, the harm is real. Uh, and it's borderline traumatic for some artists who, who considered that, you know, Greg Ginn, not just like, you know, a label mate or a bandmate, but a friend. So we're here with uh, Jim Rulin, the author of Corporate Rock Sucks, the rise and fall of SST records, kind of going through the, uh, why some of the stuff is just the catalog so poorly represented in 2022. Um, yeah, there are, a, I'm sure there's a lot of, it seems like there's tears to it where some bands are just, it's not going to be uh, financially viable to start reissuing certain things. Like, you know, it's like, like, do you want to do all the trucks, the Trotsky ice pick stuff or what? Like, which I, I like them. I liked, but it's just like, there's that part of it, but it feels like, if we were to even just say, here's a label that has 
Black Flag, uh, Minutemen, Husker Du, like those those right off the top. Like what's what's this what's the current 2022 status of of SST Husker Du records? Like they are they're still put out through SST. They never took their catalog back. That's right. And Minutemen, the idea that double nickels on the dime is goes in and out of print with time. It's just, it's just tragic. The idea that this is like a landmark record that is sometimes available. And sometimes you're going to have to go pay a hundred dollars for a vinyl copy of it because it's just not in print is just to me that it breaks my heart. Yeah, and you're not alone. And that's the example that a lot of people point to is that uh, double album of Double Nickels on the Dime. Just, you know, why isn't it available? Why isn't it, um, you know, can't people listen to it? And then there's, even in the streaming universe, there's all kinds of stuff that's simply not available. And and you kind of have to ask yourself why. If if it's not, not available, why not release it back to the artist's? Um, I mean, is it a back, is it a, is it a owed money issue? And I mean, I know you don't literally, maybe this is something you'd have to speculate on. I mean, but is that a part of it that there's just people are owed money and you don't want to open that door? I I think it, it's a case by case instance with, uh, with each band. Um, like when I researching it, I discovered talking to different people from different bands is that they were able to when they got signed, negotiate the contract. They were able to, you know, take the word perpetuity out and put seven years or 10 years or, or something like that. And they didn't have any real resistance to that. If that's what they wanted to do, uh, SST was fine with it, um, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting. And that's obviously has helped those people out. And, and, and you don't really know to ask those things when you're just starting out and you've never put on any, any music before. Right. And that was the case with a lot of these, these artists. Sure. Uh, Bands never thought they were going to do anything past what they were doing that month. Maybe. Right. Exactly. So it really is like I've, I've, I was, when I was on the book tour earlier this month, um, I'm not going to mention who, but I bumped into somebody who told me that they actually were able to buy the rights to uh, the music back. And this would happened a long time ago, but they had the masters. They, they bought it, they had the masters and they just had not done anything with it yet. So um, with, that leads me to believe that there are probably other people in similar situations. And, and then there are also people who are very vocal in their displeasure about, um, you know, SST situation and, you know, not releasing the music and not doing anything with it and not issuing statements and not paying what they feel is owed. Um, so it, it, it's very diff- challenging to make blanket statements to apply to all the bands because it's such a hodgepodge of a situation. Yeah, and it is an interesting catalog because you can look at it in eras where if it was at one point it was, black flag and scene adjacent bands was the, the first era of SST. And then maybe the next one, it opens, they widen the net a little bit, but then what I pass that you start getting into 
Minneapolis, Husker Du. You start getting into Sonic Youth in New York, and just it's it's then it's not a, a scene based label at all anymore. It's just they're signing based on music. Yeah, and it was really fascinating when I started to talk to people who worked at the label especially people who had uh, Greg Ginn's ear and were able to influence some of the people who then joined the label. I'm thinking particularly like people like, you know, Joe Carducci and Ray Farrell who had worked in other places before and were able to bring, you know, people into the fold, like, like the meat puppets that Mm -hmm. Joe Carducci brought the meat puppets to uh, SST and, you know, um, you know, Ray Farrell brought a number of, he didn't bring Sonic Youth, per se, but, uh, but he had worked with them before and he was definitely part of uh, an enthusiastic supporter. Uh, Pell-Mell, he'd worked with them and, uh, or, and, um, and was definitely behind that, that signing as well as a number of other instrumental bands uh, from the Bay Area. So it was really fascinating to see how those networks influenced the label and it's, you know, the, the different people that got signed. And then there's the whole story of what happened in the Northwest, which I found really fascinating. Where, because you have SST is kind of like the, 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 in terms of independent labels, you have SST and then you have these other labels popping up kind of in throughout the eighties. And then midway through the eighties, there's a, a label sub pop. That's a, I guess started as a cassette label, right? Did Sub Pop serve as a cassette label? Yeah, it started out as like a magazine and cassette anthology thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And so then, but then that they there was there was definitely because SST at one point would have been the coolest label on the planet to have signed to. If you were in a band and you were on SST, you were you now were were uh, like you got a seal of approval stamped on your band yeah i mean it was the pinnacle and um i mean and they were towards the end the bands were even you know i don't want to say cynical about it but like a band like soundgarden that had a very they had an offer to go to a major label and they're like no we want we have this opportunity to go on sst and we want to do that first that's mm-hmm. how much it meant to kind of build some cred into their narrative. But also like how cool is it to be an SST, you know, band, you know. Oh, what, it's what's it's, cooler than that? It's definitely it must have been thrilling to to have that to have that label name on the bottom of your record. But at that point when there's money sniffing around from major labels, it's kind of it's it's kind of a good business decision to just straight up get some indie cred before you take the next step up the ladder. But also think about, um, you know, someone that, um, that, that I know you're acquainted with, uh, Gerard Cosloy from Homestead, you know, SST kept poaching bands from, from mm-hmm. that level, you know, some of the biggest bands. Well, Dinosaur and, and Sonic Youth. Yeah. How like heartbreaking that must've been uh, for that guy. And, 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 and also how it must've, hit them and hit them in the pocket as well. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of like a fish, a slightly bigger fish eats a slightly smaller fish. And then at the end of the, at the end of the aquarium is just some gigantic major label fish 
that's eating all the fish. That's actually a liquor company slash possible arms company. Uh, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. So you, when you were talking about the Pacific Northwest, you were talking about sound garden and screaming trees became a, uh, they were, they were a part of, of that whole initial wave of what was going to come out of, uh, come out of, you know, Seattle and the, uh, the adjoining areas. Oh yeah. I think there's like definitely a link, a direct link between side two of my war screaming trees and Nirvana. Yeah, absolutely. And there's even talk through the book that Nirvana did Nirvana want to be on SST? Very much so. That that uh, I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, they wrote and sent in a demo, and they were kind of vouched for. Is that right? Yeah, actually, they had uh, you know Mark Lanigan advocating for them on on their behalf, and um, and Mark said uh, he had three different discussions with uh, Greg in, or that he sent the tape to him three times. I don't know how many discussions he had, but but that he just could not get again to budge on them. He just didn't see uh, the greatness of Nirvana, which um, a lot of people didn't. I mean, I think you talk about that in your book. I look, I loved, I loved bleach to the, for I, I, I'm definitely in the minority on this one is that for me, Nirvana kind of stops at that sliver single <laughs> and it's just a downward slide after that. Um, I just thought they were perfect at that point. I thought bleach is bleach is one of my all time favorite records. And I just, I thought they were everything. Well, you were a cooler kid than I was because I, I didn't hear bleach until after, uh, nevermind. And, um, but of course I loved it more. I was just yeah. thrilled that there was like cool music on the radio again. Oh, no, what they represented in the, in the, the, not the underground, but in the, the capital C culture, I guess you'd call it. It's, it's one of the best things that could have happened. Them just rolling in and, and just changing the face of so many things and, and redefining what a huge band could look like and sound like. Unless you were a hair metal band, then it was big big trouble <laughs> yeah i no, i agree with that i also do think the i think the hair metal thing is a little more nuanced than the a lot of the hair metal bands will would like it to be where the reality is that scene was 10 years old at that point the that that you know that la metal scene it was a, it, they were a decade in and scenes run their course. Yep. So it's like, yes, this new thing came along that that people latched onto, but they weren't doing themselves any favors by kind of running their own scene into the ground uh, either. They kind of they they made themselves uh, able to be swept out of the spotlight. Um, what would you say the uh, if you had to name five, for somebody who doesn't know what SST is, what would be five 
records that you feel like encapsulate what this label was? Wow. Well, um, I've been uh, asked that quite a bit and I've I've answered it differently uh, in different ways. Um, But I think one of the records would have to be Negative Lands, Escape from Noise, Mm -hmm. because it's such a weird experimental record that still holds up. Um, I think another one would have to be, uh, I'm kind of going backwards, but uh, um, I would have to put St. Vitus in there because speaking of the, of the Northwest Mm -hmm. and, and metal, I mean, here's a slow sludgy black Sabbath inspired metal band that Greg Ginn decides to sign at the height of the hair metal, you know, craze in Hollywood. Right. Mm -hmm. Sunset strip is a wash and pant spandex and hairspray and, and here comes, you know, denim and leather St. Vitus, which um, I still can't get enough of and I love listening to. Um, you'd have to throw in like one of the, you know, Sonic Youth or Dinosaur albums. You could really take your pick depending on whether you're a, you know, what part of the Northeast you're from. But I really love uh, Sister, Sonic Youth Sister. That record kind of embodies, you know, like, it seems like that's where the, they're starting to latch on to some some things and you know define some things that pave the way for daydream nation which i think is probably one of the best records of the 1980s yeah and, i think it's one of the best records ever that's yeah. that's one of the big ones for me um so what is that three that's so three cool. Um, yeah. And I'm working backwards and now. Like I, I'm going to put Stains 1983, which is really like a snapshot of 1981 Southern California hardcore, like you've never heard it before. A um, bunch of guys from from Boyle Heights, and uh, led by Robert Bracera's guitar playing, which is just uh, incredible, and was a huge influence on Greg Ginn, and I think. Um, I mean, there's a little danger in overstating that, but, um, when I, when I did talk to Robert told me that like that Ginn and Dukowski would come hang out with them. They didn't go to Hermosa beach. They came to hang out with them, which I think says a lot about Robert Becerra's guitar playing and how much Ginn respected it. So we'll throw that in there. And you uh, you have one slot left and there was hovering around. One arcade, double nickels, uh, meat puppets too. It's like you Ooh, damaged. Uh, what are we going to go with here? You know what? Uh, I'm going to be a bit of a homer and uh, show my love to my friend Keith Morris and go with SST1 Nervous sure. Breakdown. Yeah. Well, you can't. That's the perfect record. That's it's like. You can't tell the story of Southern California punk rock without without Keith Morris or Black Flag, and that that's the one record that has them both. So uh, I'm, I'm going to go there. Yeah. No. Well, look, that's a that's a pretty solid uh, representation of the label, and the beauty of the label is that, of course, there you come up with a top five, and and people could tear your top five apart just as easily as you can defend it because there's just an embarrassment of riches with the label. Yeah. I mean, after you, after I forget at which point they really start cooking, but it's hard to pick top five in any given year, Mm -hmm. say like 1983 or 1984 onwards. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Yeah. And I mean, you're trying to also, I asked you to represent like a, like somebody could take a tour through what, what the spirit of the label was. So that's, that's, I think that's a great, uh, a great embodiment of what SST was. Um, I like, I like, I love like me puppets one. Right. But like, I know some people could like, Oh, well, let me check this out. And like instantly clear their room, you know, by putting mm-hmm. that record on. I mean, it's, it's not for everybody. Right. Yeah. But it's, it's funny though. It's like all of these things from like the, from the seed of these meat puppets records go to Nirvana covering them on the unplugged and kind of keeping like, you just see the, 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 the vines that grew out of this label grew and kept going and impacted so many different places it's funny to me, it'll never like when I was over somebody's house watching WrestleMania and then Johnny Knoxville comes down and you hear Corona by the Minutemen play (laughs) over the WrestleMania sound system in this packed arena. It's, it's the Minutemen that they're the, that's the jackass theme. And it's like, you think about the way that this, the, the, way this label impacted so many different aspects of the culture, the visual thing. You look at the, or the, the, the Pettibon influence on punk album design, t-shirt design, art, high art. Un, it's, it's inconceivable. The impact that those flyers had and those album covers had it just this i mean it moved the needle in so many different ways um and it's a really challenging story to tell and you did a great job telling it there's a couple other things you mentioned negative land um it's as one of the top five and it's it's kind of interesting because negative land are not a traditional rock group at all it's it's a it's a, like a, a sound collective. What would, what would, how would they define themselves? No, I, I think, uh, I think that's pretty good. You know, they, you know, all kinds of uh, sound collage and, you know, mixing radio and scrambling, you know, different aspects of found media and found mm-hmm. sound and ambient sound. And I mean, they're just like miles ahead of their time considering the, their early experiments were all done with tape. Absolutely. And they, uh, one of the, uh, one of the things about negative land were, well, that I was surprised reading the book was just like the amount of copies they were, the amount of units that they were moving, there's be bands would, would cut their hand off to sell 35,000 copies of an album now. Oh Yeah. I mean, the idea that Escape from Noise was the one that was like 35K. Yeah, that's, yeah. And it's just, it's, that's, that's a, that's a testament to what the brand of SST meant that people would trust that name on the record and give it a shot, whether they knew what it was going to be or not, that if it was kind of, it was pre-approved. Yeah. And I think the, I also think that, uh, I mean, we're talking about negative land and escape from noises in very experimental terms. I mean, this is the band that they invented the term culture jamming, right? Which is, mm-hmm. 
you know, really define so much of what was to come in, in, uh, in mass media and the internet. But that song, Christianity is Stupid, was was like dangerous and catchy at the same time. And like, it must have really, I can see everyone at SST getting really fired up the first time they heard it. Oh, because it, again, you're talking about the spirit and this is just like, even if they're not using traditional means of expressing the spirit, they're tapping into the same spirit of being kind of, like you said, culture jamming, trying to turn things on their ear and expose uh, things for the way they really are. Uh, Ironically, SST and negative land that ends up being the kind of the beginning of the end, the, the, the conflict that comes from negative land and, and their label. Yeah. It's the, it's the jump the shark moment. And uh, I I went into a lot of detail with that um, because it, it is such a pivotal moment, but also because it's so well documented, you know, the, mm-hmm. the negative land, you know, published all of the, everything that, um, that came out of that conflict with SST. And I think it was a case where SST, you know, met someone that was kind of like a, it's a classic case of a prize fighter. You, 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 you're the king of the ring until you meet that, that, you know, leaner version of yourself. Right. And, uh, and, and you just can't keep up. And that, that's kind of what negative land. There was just no quit in that band. They wore down everybody. And in a, in a, I know you go into it in, in really interesting depth in the book. How would you, what would be a nutshell version of the negative land SST conflict? Um, wow. Well, it would be, it's, I guess it starts with uh, the Casey Kasem uh, outtake, you know, the, there's a bit of audio on of Casey Kasem running down U2 on a on a hot mic, and it had circul apparently that clip of Casey Kasem, you know, cursing and making fun of U2 had circulated underground among sound engineers for a long time. But when mm-hmm. when it got into Negative Land's hands, they're like, okay, we're going to use this and make a song out of it, and basically just repurposed. Uh, still haven't found what we're looking for, and um, and unfortunately, it was right at a time. It came out right at a time when the world was waiting for the next uh, U2 album. And uh, the design was a bit misleading and made fans of U2 think that this, is, this was it. Do you, how much do you think that actually happened, though? Do you th- was, are, there, are there like cases of people saying, I bought this thinking I got the new U2 record and it turned out to be I wonder if that's always like that, like that war of the worlds thing where everybody's like, oh, everybody was in a panic and they were running for their lives from the alien invasion. And then, but then you think about it, most people were just like, no, they were doing commercials in the middle of it. I knew I could tell it was a radio broadcast. Well, you know, I always thought it was overblown because of, you know, I've been in uh, the bunker with SST and all of their you know, reading all their press releases. And mm-hmm. I mean, there was, they really struggled, you know, it was never easy for them. They struggled to be heard with every release that they put out. Um, but very recently when I was in New York, you know, at doing an interview at Sirius XM with the, the DJ said, no, we were absolutely fooled. We, there were, I actually talked to people who had bought the seven inch thinking it was you too. 
And I was like, wow, uh, I guess that really happened. Um, but I guess if you're like, if you, if you really love music and you were really waiting for it, I mean, it seems absurd to think of people like, <laughs> to be, for, yeah. to be, I can't wait to see what uh, you two craps out next. But I mean, <laughs> they, they started out with very indie roots as well. So I guess it's possible that, that, people were really waiting for the next thing. Um, mm -hmm. But, um, but Island records seem to think so. And they, they made that a big part of the case so that it was uh, intentionally deceptive or sure, that and, it was misrepresenting on the marketplace that this was a, cause it said U two on it. If they, if they had just not called the thing U two, maybe they could have gotten away with it. Right. And it was a U two spy plane, but that was a, a bit too subtle for, for most people apparently. And, for definitely for the lawyers. Yeah. And so then so, Lee, so then Island Records U2's label demands everything gets destroyed and all the recoupable uh loss of income like that's what they went after them with uh like guns blazing. Yep, they sure did and and SST was like initially worked with the band saying okay we got to do something about this and make it right and and i don't and i think that both the label and the artists were on good terms with each other initially because otherwise why would sst then advance ne um negative land money so that it could finish the pro uh, projects that were in development and the thinking was that they'll advance this money, they'll finish the projects, and then they can sell that and use it to make up for the losses from, from the legal. But apparently some more lawyers got involved and um, were trying to, SST sent Negative Land a letter where, um, where they would agree to hold SST blameless and be fully culpable for it. And Negative Land was like, uh, no, like you're the label, we're the artist, like you're you're you've got skin in the game too. Yeah, and, and where are your attorneys also? Like labels are supposed to have attorneys. Right. Well, it's probably the attorneys who are advising them. They're like, hey, see if you can get your artist to sign this. But um negative I mean, that's speculation on my part. Oh, I, I mean right from the get-go, it's like, why would nobody say on the SST side? Are we sure we should be putting out a record that is going to is playing with fire to the degree that this one clearly will play with fire? Well, apparently um, there was someone who did and it, and it cost him his job. And uh, the gentleman I talked to said that he said like, look, this is what's going to happen. If you release this, you're going to get sued by Iowan. You're going to get sued by U2. You're going to get sued by Casey Kasem and all those things happen. So, um, yeah. He was like he this he could see what was coming. He was like, I'm not going to stick around for this fight and end up leaving SST. And that's just so that's just ultimately a case of whoever's running the label from the from the artistic side of things saying like we're pushing it through. We're not going. We'll take our chances. Yeah, hubris, right? You know, yeah. like the uh, it's like Greek mythology time. You know, why 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 did things play out the way they did? You know, and and this is '88. Where are we at now? Oh, no, no, we're, I think, in 91. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah you're right. Okay. Because we're well past the, um, yeah, because 87 would be like Escape from Noise, I think it was about 87, if I well, maybe Maybe a little bit earlier than that. And then okay. all, the, um, all this stuff, uh, um, yeah. Now the off. years are starting to blur together. I'm no, lucky you, I even 
could remember that there was an eight in front of <laughs> these years wow. sometimes. This, um, well, so the the short version then is that um, that you know Negative Land refused to sign. SST sued Negative Land. Negative Land sued SST, and negative land had a lot less to lose once they got to they got pro bono counsel so they could then drag the fight on for as long as it needed to be dragged out and uh um it wouldn't cost them anything whereas that was certainly not the case with sst who was by this time very familiar with legal entanglements and and knew they'd kind of gotten themselves into a bad situation yeah and and it resulted in the record was pulled it was out of, the record was was out of print immediately like they they stopped pressing it and then the the when the thing started going south everybody's fighting sst kind of retaliate in a very artist unfriendly way of kind of putting out things that the band didn't sanction and really really just burning the bridges at that point saying like we're going to, we're going to turn the, we're going to turn the knife on this one a little bit on the way out. Yep. Yeah. And, and that ironically ends up being kind of, that's really, like you said, that's the jump the shark moment for, for SST. Yeah. What I think is really fascinating about the story is that, you know, negative land existed to tweak the media and, and I think that's one of the things that SST loved about Negative Land is that it would it would create controversies. You know, the whole uh, um, Helter Stupid album, the whole concept behind that, um, where Negative Land um, used the the a murder that happened in Minnesota, um, that where a kid murdered his entire family. And negative, you know, over an argument over music, and negative land circulated the rumor that it was over an, a negative land song, which was certainly not the case. But people were so ready to demonize, you know, you know, rock and roll and all that 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 the story just, you know, took off, right? Went viral, so to speak. And so, like, the media was, you know, had been burned by negative land over and over again. I mean, negative land. If you if you called and left a message on negative land's machine. You might end up in the next negative land song. It was like which the reporter, the 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 kid who was chasing down that story for I think Rolling Stone, yeah, ended up on their uh, on the album. Yes, so it's like anything was fair game, and yet um, the idea of a label suing its own artists was so strange, even even to the you know, media people, music media. That they sided with Negative Land, which was a fairly risky thing to do since they were so untrustworthy. But yet they documented everything and they shared everything and they published everything, and it made it very easy for the media to pick up the story and be like, "This here's a David and Goliath story." And uh, surprise, surprise, uh, the David is is Negative Land. You know, mm -hmm. people like were inclined to think it was like some weird story between. U2 and Island and SST and and nobody cares about that stuff, right? Nobody reads books or articles to read about companies suing each other. But um, but SST and Negative Land made it very personal and uh, mm -hmm. 
and and people and I also think and this is my a bit of theory and also a bit on what people told me is that um, there had been rumors about SST and some of their business practices and that there were a lot of journalists who wanted to write about it but didn't really have like a story to go with and this this gave them a reason to go after SST yeah and and by that point uh, I guess there's just enough bad will out there in general for a guy who has jerked around a lot of artists and is on the wrong side of being seen as the cool guy. And is, he also has Henry Rollins out there where they're, they are always kind of taking shots at each other. And it's like, it's the guy who now is just like a, he seems like the system. He seems like, the man when he was once the guy throwing rocks at the man and he's also like he's got his his uh jammy bands that people are like is like a the law of diminishing returns from an artistic standpoint so it's not exactly like people were he greg Ginn was was shedding uh supporters at that point for things well before negative land and then this is almost just like the the way to just slam the door on him being seen as a cool guy once and for all. Like he's he's just another old guy who's a part of the problem now. Right. I mean, the cautionary tale that if you stay in the game long enough, you will become what you hate. Oh, absolutely. And that's that's the other thing with it. It's just like it's such a bummer how that logo that meant so much became so devalued also in terms of the quality of the records that were coming out and a label that put they put out way too much stuff. And then suddenly they put out hardly anything and they kind of become this strange compilation label almost at a point where they're just mining the back catalog of bands that have gone on to become successful or or just or or their their stock has risen to where now suddenly you need a a best of the minute men record or you know acoustic sst artist it's just a strange it just became like a label of gimmicks at a point and bumper stickers and and like the like the corporate rock sucks slogan more than was what they were about more than the records they were putting out. Yeah. The, the kill Bono t-shirts and that kind of stuff. It's just corny at a point. Yeah. And, I, was, uh, I was a little surprised and dismayed to see, um, you know, cause while I was writing the book, I was frequently checking in at the SST website to see like what was going on there. And, and seeing like no new releases or anything, you know, cause I didn't want to write about how there was no new releases in the works and then there's new releases in the works and seeing stuff like, you know, the black flag bars on a, on a face mask during the pandemic, you know, it's just, yeah. it's just sad, you know? Yeah. Especially when, if you're going to aim your energy at anything regarding this label, I'm, I know I'm, uh, beating a dead horse here. It's like, there's so many more noble things that you could be aiming your focus on when it comes to releasing things, uh, under the SST banner, than you know, 
N95 masks. What's Tom, what's the record that you would most like to see get uh, re-released? I mean, I just feel like there should be, look, I, I think the saccharine trust stuff would be great if it was properly cataloged and, and represented. I think people would have a total reevaluation of them. Yep. I mean, look, the, the, the the minute the 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 meat puppet stuff ended up on Ryko, so that stuff escaped the so that's in good shape that catalog. Yep. I think the Husker Du catalog, the idea that there's not a proper SST era Husker Du box set is kind of it's 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 kind of criminal. Baffling. The idea this is one of the bands that has establish them so they are just giants now in terms of what they meant and what they still mean the and same with minutemen i mean look at black flag black flag should be those things should be cleaned up sound good in 2022 and there should be live shows there should be whatever it is it should just have an, there should just be an order to it it shouldn't just be like buckshot which is what it seems like now now it just seems like all those things are just sprayed wherever and what you want to pick at is what you can pick at there should be presentation with it and i think the idea, the idea that there's the glenn friedman book just came out people care about this stuff so much and it's just so it's so embarrassing for there to be this kind of art this poorly tended to yeah the the curation is is very uh suspect yeah like what would you what what would you want uh if you could pick one one album or band to be to be cleaned up and and presented to everybody so that people could see who they were well, um, I mean, there's so much talk already about, you know, um, the stains. I know people have been trying to rescue that album for a long time. And, uh, you know, I don't know if that'll ever happen. You know, there, is, I think it's just something that, you know, I hear from people who have read the book who are, who are established musicians and never heard of the stains and never listened to them and are like, wow, this stuff is amazing. How did I not know about this? And these are people mm-hmm. who are like, you know, can name every obscure hardcore uh, band out of the Midwest, you know, but, but yet have somehow never heard of the stains, you know, it's really criminal. Yeah. It's really, um, I mean, one of the things that rock music is good for is legacy and people celebrating legacy because it's a, it's kind of one of the, the backbones of liking music rock music is to just have these things to tell stories and to tell the stories of unappreciated artists is like gold in terms of rock music. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, you know, it's, we're not talking about world war two veterans, but, um, but we are talking about extreme music and extreme lifestyles. And, you know, we, we don't have all the members of the stains anymore. And the people that took the photos and that were in the were in the uh, produced the albums, you know, some of these guys are in poor health, right? And they're not going to yeah. be around to tell the story of this record, you know, for very long. And that's just one one album mm-hmm. out of hundreds. So, I, um, and ironically, one of the things um, 
all of the the Black Flag was such a revolving door of members. But and I was talking to John Worcester about this today, and he was saying that I think only one member of Black Flag is is deceased in the entire yeah. in the entirety. I think it's Sal, right? Yeah, yeah who was uh, one of the one of the last bass players before the band broke up in 86 or yeah, the last bass player. The idea though, that they're still, they're all out there and just that they must, it must hurt. They, everybody must hurt a little bit when they see what this could be and what the, what their, what their amazing youth could look like in 2022, uh, but doesn't that yeah, they, must sting. There's, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of trauma and toxicity at the heart of the story. And that was, uh, you know, something that I was, you know, needed to be aware of and made sure I didn't get pulled into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, well, that's, let's, let's, let's talk about that. And then we'll, we'll, uh, wind things up when you were oh, actually, <laughs> what's that? On that cheery note. On that cheery note. But we can talk about We'll talk about the process of the book. You, who did you talk to? Who who didn't want to talk? I mean, I guess there's one obvious one. We, but um, but who who wanted to tell their story and who 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 didn't? And what were stories that you were, you know, just like what that we were shocked by? Any? Well, what was the process of assembling this book like? Well, sure. So, um, well, I started with Keith and. Keith gave me a list of uh, phone numbers and, you know, um, emails of people to reach out to, um, people that he was still tight with, which is virtually everyone. I mean, you know, Keith is a national treasure. I feel like there should be like a medical detachment and a secret service retinue dispatched to Keith Morris to protect him at at all times. You think Um, it'd be at Fred's 60, Fred 62. (laughs) making sure he's okay every time i go in there it's like hey there's there's keith he's he's the unofficial he's the mayor of los villas he's the Uh, man of the people you know yeah go to to skylight books uh or the mustard seed cafe and uh, chances (laughs) are you'll you'll see him there you know which is amazing because he is a true living legend that is that is undeniable and he he did it and he did it first yeah and you know he, he's not in some gated compound he's not in you know up in the hills or out mm-hmm. of state or you know um so you know yeah I, I love keith so he gave me a list and i was having very little luck um and in fact i was uh at keith's house when i got an email from from mike watt saying hey i hope you understand but i've got some legal stuff going on and i just can't talk about this stuff Mm-hmm. I was like, well, oh shit, you know, because I had I had talked to Mike before and I interviewed him for you know past projects and everybody has talked to Mike Watt. Mike Watt will talk to anyone for hours. So I was like, wow, this is gonna be a lot harder than I thought it was gonna be. If like if I can't get Mike Watt, what does that what does that mean? And then and um and then I was started to have some luck with people who actually worked at the label and I was talking with a mugger. Um, the guy who went from a roadie to being one of the four owners of SST records. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, he gave me a great interview. And at the end, I was like, you know, Mugger, I'm having trouble getting through to people. What, what do I do? And he's like, Facebook. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, they're all on Facebook. And uh, so I, uh-huh. I had to... I had deleted my Facebook account in some kind of righteous uproar many years ago. And so I had to like start up my account again and, you know, <laughs> friend mugger and he like, you know, and then, the, then I was able to start to get through to people and, it, and he was right. All the old punks are on Facebook. Sounds like a, sounds like that could have been the name of a book. All the old punks are on Facebook. <laughs> uh, no, then, it's a, so, so that got, so you were able to reach out and, and get in touch with people. Through yeah. Facebook. And, when, and then what I, then what I hoped would happen happen is that every time I talked to someone they'd be like, Hey, have you talked to so-and-so? I'd be like, yes or no. They'd be like, Oh, well, I'll talk to this person. I'll put you in touch. And so it was kind of like a, a, a chain from there. And uh, it was really difficult knowing like what to leave out because I wanted to talk to everybody, but I knew that, that would be a disaster. You know, I would never get out of 1980 if I tried to talk to everybody. Right. You know, um, yeah. I kind of had to like stick and move through the timeline. And, um, and um, so, so I did. And, uh, but luckily it was during the, uh, the pandemic. So I didn't have a lot of other things going on and I was trying not to freak out about stuff, you know, stuff going on in my family and around the world. And I just kind of, listened to a lot of old records and read a lot of old zines and talked to a lot of old punks. Yeah. And you told the story and, um, is there anything that didn't make the book that you wish you could have had room for? Like what would have been the one road you could have gone down more, more, uh, more thoroughly. I think just, um, you know, I had, you know, as you can tell, I have my own favorite bands and, um, you know, the, the music that I loved that I, that I discovered in the process and the music I loved going into it. And I, and I really had to go into not like, what did S, not, what did SST do for this band, but what did the band do for SST? Cause that's, I was telling the story of the label and yeah, I was trying to celebrate as much of the music as possible. You know, there was, you know, I was supposed to, you know, turn in a book that was between 90 and a hundred thousand words. And it was, well in excess of 130,000, you know, it just, uh, I just, it was only, you know, they didn't say I had to take anything out, but it was, there were limits to what I could do. Right. So, um, so I had to take out a lot of stuff about, uh, St. Midas and actually that's more, I wish I could have, you know, gone deeper on. There's a lot, a lot of bands like Angst and Das Domin. I would have loved to have, you know, learn more about and, you know, do a, do a bit of a deeper dive. Um, I'm one thing that I, uh, this is not, I'm not answering your question, but one thing I would love to know more about is the whole, um, new Alliance saga and how that came into, um, how that came to be SST and the decision to re-release all those, some of those things, but not all those things. And, Hmm. you know, yeah. New Alliance was a a label that, who was running New Alliance? Mike Watt. Uh, yeah, like uh, Watt and D Boone and the um, mm-hmm. the other gentleman who was the original member of the Reactionaries. Sure. And uh, look, I I would say early on, I think New Alliance is as good as SST is out of the box. I mean, they're 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 blow for blow matching them 
And in 1982, maybe even started a nose ahead, you know, when when SST has its uh, is handcuffed by its lawsuit with uh, Unicorn Records, you know, they were passing bands on to New Alliance, you know, they wanted to put out those early Husker Du records, but couldn't. So they said, why don't you check in with the New Alliance? Yeah, it's really um, that's the beauty of that scene is that there was just such an abundance of stuff that deserved to be out and deserved to exist. And they're just, the resources weren't always there or the circumstances weren't always there, but the music deserved to be out and it did get out. Yeah. And it's not sometimes a little too late. It's hard not to think of it as a a magical time, right? Because here's who's Purdue showing up in Redondo beach to record Zen arcade and the descendants are wrapping up Milo goes to college at total access. And it's just like, are you kidding me? Like these two classic albums that were recorded back to back in the same studio, practically like it's just, it's just amazing. And I mean, double nickels and Zen arcade came out on the same day. Yep. I mean, that's just, that's like, that's like a Haley's comet level of, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> of, of just two classic albums from the same label, both double albums, same day. Unbelievable. Yeah. From the, uh, from the so-called punk album of uh, Southern California. Yeah. A premier so-called premier punk label of Southern California. Yes. Well, Jim, your book is outstanding. I, I had so much fun reading it. I think everybody who has a, a, even a passing interest in this uh, scene or these bands uh, we'll have a great time also. And it's Thanks. called corporate rock sucks, the rise and fall of SST records and Jim Ruland, You did a, you did it. You wrote the book that everybody was sitting around waiting to exist. Well, thank you so much, Tom. I really appreciate that. And thanks for coming on and, and talking to us and, uh, everybody check the book out. Right on. Okay. Thanks, Jim. Okay. Well, that, that was a great time there. I, uh, You'd almost think I pre-recorded this without knowing how it went, but I didn't. I know exactly how it went. And boy, oh boy, did it go in that way. I don't know how it went. I pre-recorded this before I talked to Jim. I'm assuming that it went well because Jim's great and his book is great. I hope I didn't argue with him or fight with him. And I hope he didn't call me no name that hurt my feelings or that I didn't call him no name that hurt my feelings. I'm assuming none of that happened. Um, but I will say to you, thank you for listening to the best show this week. Thanks to Jim Rulin for coming on. Once again, we are looking for some specific equipment in Los Angeles. We're looking for a drum set, an upright piano, guitar amps, mic stands, di boxes and pa speakers so if you have these things laying around and you're looking to move them unload them uh and you want to sell them for a a, a, a affordable deal not looking for handouts if you want to look if you want to give them away i'll take them but um we want stuff we want good equipment that works that does not have to be brand new because this is a lean and mean uh, operation we got going on here we're not uh we're not we're not funded by uh, Pillsbury or any of these other 
fancy podcast networks. I know Pillsbury's doing a lot of podcasts these days. We are not. We are not that lean and mean, but we're looking to do it right. If you got that stuff, reach out, and I appreciate it. And the best show will be back next week. And I thank you all for your support. Bye-bye.